KQED. Hello and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we bring you a digest of the week's news and we try to sound smart about it. I'm Queenie Kim, here with Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix. I am here again. And Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster. Present and accounted for. Uh, who wants to start? I'll start. I have been keeping an eye on this proposed moratorium on new market rate housing construction in San Francisco's Mission District, partly because we had a debate on KQED's forum last week between Supervisor David Campos, who proposed the moratorium, and Supervisor Scott Weiner, who opposed the moratorium. The item failed this week at the Board of Supervisors. Basically, what it would have done is said, for 45 days, no more market rate housing construction in the most populous part of the mission at all. There would have been the option to extend it to two, to up to two years if supervisors had wanted to. And the point of doing that would be to give the city a little more time to figure out some solutions to the affordable housing issue in the mission. This is the oldest neighborhood in San Francisco. It has constantly changed. There's been constant turnover, constant rebuilding in the mission. But now it's gotten to the point where people feel like they're being squeezed out, priced out without any kind of cohesive plan to help them keep their homes. The Board of Supervisors needed nine votes to pass this. There was a higher bar because it was an emergency ordinance. Nine, so nine out of 11. Nine out of 11, and they only got seven. So it did get a majority, but not a strong enough majority. Most of the people who spoke at the board meeting were speaking in favor of the item, and a lot of them say they're going to try to put an item on the November ballot to do much the same thing. What was the vote? It, it was, was seven to four. Seven to four, yeah, but it needed four. nine. So there was a progressive majority that that spoke but didn't have the numbers to, to pass the thing. Um, does anybody believe that this would actually uh, no. solve anything? No. Well, then that was Supervisor Scott Weiner's argument is that this would make a bad situation worse, that what we need in the mission, he argues, is more housing construction. Now, there was a piece of the item that would have allowed construction if every single unit in the building was considered accessible to lower moderate income residents, not this blend of incomes that most buildings are supposed to have. And that was one of the things that Supervisor Weiner said, that's too high a bar. There's no way we can clear that. Well, I hate to be like, I'm sure we'll get a lot of- Just go ahead and be that, whatever that is. All right. I, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, this is sort of the way to approach things, and it's sort of great and whatever. You know, people should stay in their homes. But it's a little like standing in the way of just – I don't want to say progress because it's not necessarily progress. But this is the way San Francisco is going. I remember when I was in New York and Manhattan, like, back in the day, it was still a time when the East uh, Village was a super, super sketchy place to go, and nobody – except for students, which I was, would really even go there. And there were a lot of these conversations then. And I don't know. Like, to me, it's like they're well-meaning conversations, but never really stops anything. I mean, you know, like, look at Manhattan now. It's totally been gentrified. The East Village is probably one of the hippest places to live now. And it just just feels like stalling. It doesn't really feel like a solution, and it doesn't feel like there's ever really a solution that's— well, you know, the, about, the, the waves of gentrification in the mission over time historically have been tied to the economy. You know, the the city burns down in the 1906 earthquake and fire. There's a ton of jobs to rebuild the city in time for the 1915 World's Fair. Or a World War II breaks out, and there's a ton of shipbuilding that benefits large swaths of the city. This tech boom is very different because it's not causing gigantic increases in retail and production at all Income levels. It's 
prompting it at some and leaving other people out. So it's a little bit unique in that regard, and I think that's part of the argument about why something would need to be done. This is slightly different than what San Francisco is used to. Not completely, but well, in some yeah, but ways I think Manhattan sort of went through that too, right? I mean, I'm assuming it's probably more the banking sector and sort of the white-collar workers who made a lot of money. And there's and a lot of people upset yeah. about that too. They're yeah. not happy well, with what Manhattan's uh, But uh, uh, listen, the concern is that these people we're talking about who are being pushed out, they're not— they just don't disappear. They land someplace, and they're they're getting pushed further and further uh, out into the exurbs. There's a really great piece that uh, the Stanford Journalism School did earlier this year on people making long commutes from the Central Valley. When I heard that, I thought, old story, people making long commutes into the Bay Area from the Central Valley. Used to be people with good middle-income jobs, even uh, upper middle income. Now it's the working poor who are getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to come and work at the food service or maintenance jobs at Stanford. Is that so, true, though? Is that true? Like, I mean, you heard this a lot in Manhattan, true. too, that it was going to, like, destroy the city. Firefighters can't live it there. Police do, can't it work there. It doesn't destroy like, the city, it, but really pe- the like people who are making the— yeah, Josh a- a- alluded to something about, you know, what income levels, for instance, this is benefiting. The top— is being benefited, and then there are lots of jobs being created at the in the lower tiers or the lowest tiers, even support jobs. And people are, I mean, we've used this term so often, it's just a cliche priced out, but they have been priced out and they have to go further and further out. So, I mean, as I started to say originally, the the people don't disappear. They have to be accommodated somewhere. And this gets back to something that I think Compost has been talking about. There have been sites identified, I believe, in his plan right. that would be, what are there, 20 sites in the mission or something like that? Something like that. There's only a handful. There aren't that many. That would be possible affordable housing-only developments. Now, I'll tell you, I can't see how a 45-day moratorium, you know, giving people 45 days to figure out what they haven't been able to figure out in the course of the city's history is really going to help, or two years either. I agree with you that market forces are really, really overwhelming, and they're allowed pretty free play. But I I, I would also say something's got to give. Well, see, maybe I'm betraying my immigrant uh, background here. What can I say? It's sad people have to go like an hour away or two hours away to drive in. That's just sort of life in a capitalistic society, isn't it? I mean, it's like you can't afford to live here. You live far away. Like, I mean, and I know times are different now, but it's like when my parents were first here and they were working low-wage jobs, they lived like hours away from their jobs and they drove in. Well, it's not I mean, so in much a way, a- it's a little bit of just like the function of... The way our capitalistic society is. No, I don't know if the you're capitalist society that. is supposed to allow upward mobility, and I think part of the problem that yes. activists in the mission would would articulate is that there may be jobs, there may be places to live, but the distance between them, what Dan is articulating, makes it harder to create upward mobility because those jobs are never going to make you enough money to live in a place like the mission, to be able to live where you work. That's that whole argument about teachers being able to live in San Francisco and nurses and police officers. Police officers, not so much because police officers are well compensated. But but not very very many of them live here. But not very many. Exactly. Not very many of them live in the city. That might be by choice, but people should have the option to live where they work. That's part of the of the problem. The whole hipsterization of the mission is just kind of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of cynical way to say that the neighborhood's complexion is changing in ways that no one seems to be able to control but the people who are coming in. And that sense of disempowerment is very much underpinning 
what a lot of people said to the supervisors. There was one woman who we played a soundbite of this week on the newscast who literally got on her knees in the board chambers and begged on her knees for people to do something. I think you can only push a community so far before it pushes back. It remains to be seen at what point the pushback will get more intense, a little more strident. But this is not going away. I actually have a theory that a lot of what's happening in the mission is more of a middle class revolt. And my, uh, you know, poor people are used to being priced out of where they live. You know, uh, when I was uh, teaching a class at Mission Local, which is a hyper local news site here, and uh, they were going to do this story about, like, how do people feel about you know, the Google bus protests and this sort of whole thing of gentrification and being pushed out. So this uh, one of the students went to, uh, you know, I guess a newly immigrant family. They only spoke Spanish and uh, was sort of like, what do you think about these protests? And they're just like, oh, we didn't really know about them. And it's like, well, what about rent? Oh, yeah, rent's horrible. We're just going to have to move at some point. See, my theory is like this is really more of like a middle class revolt. It's all these like sort of middle class folks who are pissed that they can't live where they want to live. All right. Well, let's move on. Go for it. I'm just going to have a calming moment. Here. There you go. <laughs> Breathe everybody in. Okay, I've got water, uh, I guess, on the brain. Surprise. Water, uh, California, that's all California is, is water and the people and things who want and need it. The state issued its monthly report card on how we're doing in conservation. And, you know, we're not doing too bad. There was a 13.5% reduction in uh, urban water use uh, in April 2015 compared to April 2013. So that's great. That's to be applauded. Guess what our goal is? Actually, it's not a goal anymore. It's a mandate. It's the law, in effect. We have to be at 25%. And that requirement just went into effect. So I think it's going to be entertaining to see exactly where that uh, 11.5% we we need comes from because people certainly have the sense that they they're doing extra special things to to keep uh, their water use down and we've talked about the um, you know only semi weekly flushing of toilets and, and things like that. Um, so that's only what, supposed to flush it twice a week. Semi weekly. Well, see that's one of those things that could be interpreted as you know w- twice a week or once every two weeks. So just use your imagination. I might have to break that law, but okay. <laughs> Okay, so you know, I mean, Dan, Dan, let me, if I could back up for a sure. second. It seems like from the numbers that came out this week, and the numbers that keep coming out, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like the districts that are doing the best seem to almost certainly be in Northern California all the time, and the districts that are doing the worst are almost always in the Inland Empire, Orange County. It's like this north-south thing that I'm not sure how we get around just because of the differences in climate between here and there. Well, in general, that's true. Although the um, the districts that have the lowest water use per capita, I was really surprised. The number one was in a place called Lake Arrowhead in Southern California. Wow. Well, now the asterisk is it's a resort community. It right, does not, not a have a year-round population. So they're able to, to uh, play with their math a little bit. So that's suspect. There's an, But there's another little town up in... Um, Oh, uh, Lassen County called Susanville. It's actually not a little town in that part of the state. It's the county seat. And that town had 56%, a 56% cut in water use over that two-year period. And that's a place where people live all the time. Um, It's hot and dry there in the summer like it is everywhere else. And I, I look at that and I have to 
think maybe they're only flushing their toilets once a month. Um, but you're right. <laughs> God, uh, uh, um, Southern California, in general, is conserving far less than the rest of the state. Now, can I ask you just a practical question? So we're supposed to cut our water use by a certain percentage. What if you're already, like, so we've been cutting our water use pretty drastically for the last couple of years. Does that mean I have to cut, like, even 25% below what I've already cut? No, it okay. doesn't. Uh, How does that now, work? Well, the when the state set the conservation rules for all the different districts in the state, it actually did consider the the history of water conservation in those districts. So, for instance, um, East Bay Mu- Municipal Utility District, which I believe is yes, yours and, and mine, um, I, I think their uh, water conservation target is something like uh, 16 or 20 percent under the April 2013 or, or the 2013 base year. So month to month, they'll look at that. But here's my question. So, yeah. like, let's say, like, so, like, let's say I've already cut 20% from my household yeah. in the last two years. My neighbor just sort of stayed regular, right? Like, right. didn't really do anything. So, did, he has to cut 15% or whatever it is, 20%. I also have to cut 20% from where no. I've already cut? No. So, it's individual house to house? No, you're, the comparison is to what you did in 2013. Mm-hmm. So, it, so, if you've already cut your use 20%, you're where you need to be. Got right, it, to 2013. Right. Okay, I okay. get it Okay, and your neighbor is going to have some pain if uh, he or she really hasn't done anything uh, up it. until this point. But I think that pain has to do with, like, the district. It's still district average. Like, San Jose has these new restrictions in place. And the July, August, September targets, I think it's July, August, September, are based on the district's overall water usage from 2013. So you got to cut below... That's that, correct. As opposed that's to like correct. what your and, house and, and that and that's where the, the that's what the state is looking for. You're you're correct. The state is looking for the districts to conserve at these various levels, and then the districts in turn are looking at their customers to conserve so that they can hit the numbers that the state has has put in place. So if you're already kind of close to the target, you're you're going to have an easier time just inherently. Yeah, I'm looking at my water bill and I'm seeing that we've cut 25% since 2013. We're using as a household uh 70 to 75 gallons a day for two people. We rock. <laughs> Not as good as we do. <laughs> water we'll wars to, we'll in the water. studio. All right, so my topic is this controversy over cutting down the eucalyptus trees in the East Bay. It seems like uh you see Berkeley, the Oakland Hills, and uh, one other place, Berkeley Hills, have been given, what, $5.6 million from FEMA to start cutting down the eucalyptus, which are considered highly flammable trees. And actually, this is sort of more of an exploratory question for you. So here's my question. So I've always been really shocked going into the Oakland Hills, considering that 1991 fire that killed like 25 people, destroyed thousands of homes. How many eucalyptus there still are up in those trees? It's it's alarming to me. And so now we're going to get money to start clear-cutting them, I guess, or there's some debate whether it's going to be clear-cutting or thinning. But all these in neighborhood groups, environmentalists, are coming out against this. Well, so, some are. Some environmentalists don't like it. And some neighborhood groups like the plan. They're because they're worried about but it's fire. Sort of like I guess from the from not report not being an environmental reporter, and this is right. why I'm asking this question. To me, it seems asinine that people would be uh, would be protesting clearing these trees, considering they're highly flammable. If you own a home there, I imagine you'd be psyched that the government's giving you money to do this. I do understand the concern about. Uh, They're going to put pesticides in these clear-cut areas to keep the trees from coming back, and that is something that's somewhat concerning. But I'm curious as to like what's what would like what's the take on this? Because it's is it 
something that the majority of sort of experts believe is the right course? or Where do the experts come down on it? Well, it depends on the expert. I guess it's hard for me to suss out. Is this just sort of people who, like, you know, like the PETA people who are just going to, like, no matter what... Like anything that hurts a hair on an animal is going to be something they're going to call out. I don't think. It's Are these quite that these extreme. kind of environmentalists? I don't think it's quite that extreme or, because or, some of them, some of them have been, as I recall, have not taken issue with like the spirit of the plan, but with the details. Like some of the, I think it's the residents who had been opposing this, say the more urgent concern is like the low lying brush in the Oakland Hills and the Berkeley Hills in that area, as opposed to the trees. And why don't we start with this? And why don't we include that in the plan? It's almost like I would support it if, you know, it's it's one of those issues where the details become the reason not to go forward until and unless you can incorporate all the little bits and pieces. And because you haven't incorporated all these little bits and pieces, we're just going to say we're against it. Well, I'm getting a lot of stuff in my Facebook feed about we're clear cutting. There's animals well, who well, that's here, what I was going to say. Know, that, like... that there has been a there's been a, a very emotional appeal. The language clear cutting is used, and in fact, I think the original plan was to was more of a clear cut. Now, this revised plan that FEMA has approved, there was an environmental impact report that they looked at and finally signed off on, and that released this money that you were talking about, um, is is more of a thinning approach. It does use herbicides, as, as, you, um, as you pointed out as well, and people don't like that. But, you know, in the Claremont Canyon, which is close to where the fire started in uh, 1991, People are really alarmed at the fact that this veg- they live amid this vegetation that can uh, – once a fire gets going through there in a hot, on a hot, dry, windy day, it can't be stopped. So, so people there are concerned. In terms of the expert opinion, the trend has been let's restore what's native up there in practice, especially with something as uh, persistent – and determined to stay in place as a eucalyptus tree, it's been very difficult to do. So where are we with this? Is this going forward, or is it going to be stopped, or what, what's happening? Money's in place, and the belief is that it's going to go forward. All right, uh, but although, uh, never underestimate the power of litigation in California. All right, so it's time to end our podcast here with our lightning round. So, Dan Brecky, you want to set it up for us and give us your lightning round? Yeah, so here's the lightning round. Here's a couple of stories that have been probably below the radar for most people that uh, have struck us in the in the uh, previous few days. Uh, most striking thing I've seen that really didn't make a lot of headlines this week, uh, Judge Stephen Reinhardt of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals here in San Francisco wrote a piece for the Michigan Law Journal decrying the death of habeas corpus, uh, decrying more accurately Supreme Court decisions, U.S. Supreme Court decisions in recent decades that have greatly restricted the use of habeas corpus, especially for uh, prisoners facing the death penalty. And his conclusion, which uh, I think is really an alarming one, is that there's already been one prisoner executed in California inappropriately because he was not guilty of the charge for which he was executed. Josh? Mine is a lot lighter. Actually, first of all, there's two. One, Warriors going to the NBA Finals. Go Warriors. Go Warriors. Game one and two both in Oakland. Two, Pong 
the classic video game created by a San Francisco native, Al Alcorn, is in the World Video Game Hall of Fame. They announced a new class of inductees this weekend. Pong debuted at a bar in Sunnyvale in 1972. It was so popular, people crammed so many quarters in the machine that they broke it. They crashed the first Pong machine. It's at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View now, I believe. The other five games that made the Hall of Fame alongside Pong are Pac-Man, Tetris, Super Mario Brothers, Doom, and World of Warcraft. And beer pong. Yay pong. Absolutely. All kind of pong. All right. Well, that is it for Smart Mouth, KQED's Digest of the Week's News. Uh, here with me today was Dan Brecky, editor of News Fix, Joshua Johnson, newscaster for KQED, and I'm Queen of Kim.